must confess, one of the most fascinating things to me has been the landing of the Endurance rover on the surface of Mars. I've been spending tons of time, actually too much time, looking at those images. Uh, to me, it's mind-blowing that human beings would travel to other planets to colonize them. But you know what's even more mind-blowing than that? That when Jesus came into our world, he came with the intent of colonizing earth with the life of heaven. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, writes this. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. Last week, we launched a series of sermons on the Lord's Prayer. Today is week two of that series, and we're focusing on the piece of the prayer where Jesus encourages us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want to invite you back to the Lord's Prayer. We're going to read uh, from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 15, and I want you to follow along with me, and then we'll focus on that second portion of the Lord's Prayer, okay? This is what the Word of God says. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will the Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. So what does Jesus mean when he encourages us to pray that God's kingdom would come to earth and that his will would be established on earth as it is in heaven? Three things I want to go through with you today. First, the meaning of the word kingdom. What does Jesus mean when he talks about the kingdom? Several times in the gospel accounts, Jesus throws this term out the kingdom of God. And he says the kingdom of God is at hand. What does Jesus mean by the kingdom? So let's talk about the meaning of the kingdom. Uh, Secondly, let's talk about the signs of the kingdom. When the kingdom is present, what are some of the things that we see once the kingdom is present? And then lastly, how do we usher God's kingdom into the world? That's a practical point that will hopefully inspire you and I to live out the meaning of this prayer. So first, Uh, What's the meaning of the kingdom? Very simply, the meaning of uh, the kingdom of God is God's presence and God's rule. See, Jesus is king, and wherever he is at, he rules. That's the meaning of the kingdom of God. There is a passage in the Gospels that illustrates that very well. If you were to go to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, we have there a passage that records the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It begins with Jesus being baptized. In his baptism, as you would remember, the Father affirms him, the Spirit comes down on him. That same Spirit that comes down on Jesus on his baptism leads Jesus into the desert to fast and to pray and to be tempted by the devil. And that Spirit, the Spirit of God, moves Jesus out of the desert into the villages of the region of Galilee 
where he started to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, and then shortly thereafter, you see the Jesus calling his disciples to follow him, calling people to follow him, and telling them that it was his plan and his vision to make them fishers of men. It starts with Jesus' baptism, and then that passage ends with Jesus' mission being shared with the disciples, at least the intention of his mission being shared with his disciples. And there's obviously three implications uh, to that passage in Mark chapter 1. The first one is that uh, we must welcome the king. See, the Holy Spirit ushers the presence of God in our lives when we, through faith, believe in that which Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. When that happens, the Spirit of God begins to dwell inside of us. The Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God the Father, begins to dwell inside of us, establishing the kingdom of God inside of us. That's why Jesus, in Luke 17, 21, he says that the kingdom of God is within. The kingdom of God starts and begins in our hearts when we, through faith, appropriate ourselves of that which Jesus Christ have done for us. Have you appropriated yourself with that which Jesus Christ has done for you? Have you, through faith, received Jesus' work on your behalf? See, if you have, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is characterized by his presence and his rule. But then secondly, here's a second implication of that, and that is that this kingdom is gradually expanding. See, it starts with Jesus' baptism, and it culminates into a call to mission. Jesus, in other places of the Gospels, he uses metaphors to illustrate the reality of the kingdom, this reality of the kingdom, that the kingdom is gradually expanding. Uh, Particularly in uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 31, he says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Think about a mustard seed. It starts really small, but then it gives birth to a tree and a large tree, and then the birds of the air come and they rest on its branches. It starts very small, but it has a big vision, a big vision that starts small. And if you continue to read uh, the Bible, and specifically if you go back into the Old Testament, the promise is that as this kingdom expands, at one point it will take over the earth. In Habakkuk chapter 2, the prophet Habakkuk prophesies that one day the world will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. This kingdom is growing. This kingdom is expanding. And it is, number three, here's the third implication. It is our responsibility to usher this kingdom into the world. In the power of the Spirit, this Spirit that dwells inside of us, that has brought the kingdom of God inside of us, we are to take that which is inside, outside. We are to usher the kingdom of God into the world. It has been always a fascinating thought to me that we carry the power of the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom inside of us. Wherever you go, wherever you go, whether you enter your school campus or 
your office space or your home or a game, uh, as you are part of a team, wherever you go, there is the presence of God. There is the rule of God because the kingdom of God lives inside of you. And you were called to usher that reality around you, the kingdom of God around you. Have you ever thought about that? As you wake up in the morning and as you're leaving your house, I am taking the presence of the kingdom uh, wherever I'm going right now, and I am to usher that presence, the presence of God and the rule of God, wherever I'm at. You are to do that in your working space, in the conversations. You will have conversations uh, with people throughout the day, and you are called to usher in the reality of the kingdom in a conversation. As you manage your finances, as you relate to your spouse, as you break bread with others, you are to usher the reality of the kingdom to the world around you. Jesus' call to his disciples is really clear. The meaning of I will make you fishers of men is just that, so that they would, just like Jesus, expand the boundaries of the kingdom so that one day the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters covers the seas. Now, that obviously leads us to point two, which is the signs of the kingdom. What are the signs that the kingdom is establishing itself around us? What are the signs? And to that, I, I want to take you to another passage in the Bible. It comes from the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 17, where the apostle Paul, I believe, is imagining the meaning of the Sermon of the Mount. And he's reflecting upon the life of Jesus. See, the Sermon of the Mount is a sermon where Jesus talks about uh, what the life in, with life in the kingdom looks like. And this is how Paul summarizes things, okay? He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but, listen to this, of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Think about that. See, the apostle Paul sees three dimensions to the kingdom of God. These are signs that uh, the kingdom of God is present. Whenever these things show up, the kingdom of God is present. Uh, one is something that's normative. It's imperative. And then there's obviously two outcomes. There's a situational outcome, and there's an existential outcome to that, that norm. Uh, and these are signs of the kingdom. So let, let's go through the first one. Let's go through the first one. The first one is righteousness. He says the kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking, but in righteousness. Man, that aligns super well with what Jesus, still in chapter 6 of, of Matthew, in the Sermon of the Mount, says in verse 33, right? That very famous verse that you know. But seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God and its righteousness. Meaning, this is what Jesus is saying. Without righteousness, there is no kingdom. Whenever the kingdom is present, there is righteousness. That's the normative. You see? Now, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? See, now, now American believers 
whenever they read this word righteousness in the Bible, uh, immediately in their mind comes this idea of private morality, of sexual chastity, of a strong prayer life, of Bible reading. That's not exactly what the word righteousness in the Bible means. This word comes from a Hebrew word, a word zadik, and this word zadik means uh, conducting all of your relationships, family relationships, and social relationships in a way that there is fairness, that there is generosity, and that there is equity, okay? This is how the Bible describes or defines righteousness. The life of the righteous is characterized by that. That in their relationships, in all of their relationships, there's always fairness, there's always generosity, grace and mercy extended, and there is equity. People are invited in. That's the idea of righteousness uh, in the Bible. See, a, a righteous person is, is someone that puts the needs of the community ahead of their own. The self-righteous or the wicked in the Bible, which stands in contrast to, to the righteous, is someone that puts his own needs ahead of the community. He's always saying to himself, you know, that which I have is my own. It is a byproduct of my hard work. I earned it. I can do whatever I want with it. See, the the, uh, the disadvantage or those who are struggling in life. It is their fault. It is because of their decisions. It is because of their choices that they are where they're at. They deserve it. You see the contrast between the righteous and the self-righteous? Somebody who has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of of her or him lives out a life that's characterized by righteousness. They have been justified by Jesus, and righteousness is a, an outcome of their lives. They're always putting the needs of others ahead of their own. They're always disadvantaging themselves for the sake of others. So let me ask you this question. How are you living your life? Are you putting the needs of others ahead of your own and your family? Are you putting the needs of others in your family ahead of your own? Or when it's about spending money, you know, most of the money is spent on you versus on others. And in your company, in your business, are you putting the needs of your employees, of your clients ahead of your own? Or are you using them for your own sake? See, the life of a righteous is characterized by service. It's characterized by humility. In all of their relationships, there's fairness, there's generosity, there's equity. But here is the outcome of, of that as well. What The first outcome of when you live a righteous life, the Apostle Paul says it's peace. See, if righteousness is the normative Peace is the situational outcome. In other words, that's what you begin to see around you. The, the word for peace in the Bible is the word shalom. And it doesn't mean what it usually means for us Westerners. Like for us, when we think about peace, it's an ab absence of conflict, 
Um, we, we think of peace as, as a feeling, as an inward state. Uh, in the Bible, uh, peace is much bigger than that. The word shalom in the Bible means the full flourishing of all things. It's what you had at first when the world was created. Everything functioned properly. Everything was in its proper place. Nothing died. We lived in a world where God was absolutely present and when he, where he absolutely ruled through Adam and Eve. He exercised dominion over all of creation. And he spent time with Adam and Eve, real time with Adam and Eve. That was a state of shalom. The relationship between the spouses, um, Adam and Eve was, was, was how it should be. The relationship between humanity and creation was as it should be. The relationship between humanity and God was as it should be. Shalom was the reality of Eden. But now, because of sin, humanity has been kicked out of Eden. We, lead, we live out of Eden, outside of Eden, east, as the Bible describes, of Eden. And shalom is no longer the reality of our world. Things are not in its proper place. Uh, when you uh, look at the news, when you hear the stories of people around you, it's evident that this world is not characterized by shalom, that shalom is not the reality of life in this world. But the promise of Scripture is that Jesus has come into the world to restore shalom, to take us back to where things started in, on Eden. That's the mission of Jesus Christ. And therefore, when you live a life of righteousness, your life is characterized by reconciliation. I mean, why do you think that in verse 15, the last verse, uh, verses 14 actually in 15, uh, Jesus talks about forgiving others, forgiving their trespasses as you have been forgiven by your Father in heaven. Why does he talk about that? Because that is the implication of what the righteousness of the kingdom looks like. It's repairing relationships. It's, 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 it's repairing communities. It's, uh, it's repairing bodies by caring for the physical needs of people, by repairing people's emotional state, by repairing people's relationship with God as the gospel is proclaimed See, as the gospel is proclaimed in all these ways, shalom begins to become a reality around our lives. It begins to be a reality and becomes visible in your neighborhood, in your workspace, in your marriage, in your family, in your school campus. See, because the kingdom of God lives inside of you and you live the life of righteousness, everywhere you go, you should be making things better. Here's that question that I'm always asking ourselves as a church. Whenever I get a chance to be with the leadership of our church, I ask this question. Is Miami better? Is our city better? Because we're here. Or it makes no difference at all. You should be asking that question. Is, is, is uh, my business and the lives of the people that I work with, is it better because I'm there? Is my neighborhood better because I'm there? Is my 
family dynamics, the family dynamics of my household, is it better because I have ushered the kingdom into that space? That's a very important question for all of us to ask. And my challenge to you is that you would be intentional about ushering the kingdom into any workspace that you've been called to, any space that you've been called to, not just workspace, but any space that you've been called to. And as you live a life of righteousness, the life of somebody that disadvantages themselves for the sake of others, somebody that puts the needs of others ahead of their own, that shalom will be a reality around you. Now, the second outcome of someone that lives this life of righteousness is not just peace, as the Apostle Paul talks about as he reflects on the Sermon of the Mount, but it's, it's joy. So if um, peace is the situational outcome, joy is the existential outcome. I'm, I'm reminded of a passage in Acts chapter 8 where Philip, one of the deacons of the early church, goes out into the city of Samaria and begins to evangelize the people of Samaria. And uh, as he is preaching Christ crucified and risen to the population in Samaria, people are coming to uh, a state of repentance and they're turning their lives to Christ and, and substantial changes begin to happen. They're giving up their sorcery practices and all that. And one of the things that we read right there in Acts chapter 8 that's, that's beautiful is that because of that, there was great joy in that city. See, where the kingdom is, there's joy. Because where the kingdom is, there's righteousness and peace. And the outcome of righteousness and peace is, is joy. If you are not bringing joy into the spaces that God has placed you in, you are not living in light of the kingdom of God that should be a reality inside of you. If you don't have a life that's characterized by joy, if you're always grumpy, always constipated, that's an indication that maybe you're not living in light of the reality of the kingdom that's inside of you. See, uh, Christian maturity and growth is towards this pursuit of, of joy. That only a life that's characterized by righteousness that sees an outcome of peace around them can experience joy, joy. Is there joy in your life? See, those are the signs of the kingdom. Whenever there's righteousness, whenever there's peace, and whenever there is joy, there is the kingdom of God. Now, lastly, last question, okay? Pastor, I understand that we are called to usher in the kingdom into the world. How do we do that? How do we usher the kingdom of God into the world? There's two ways, two very quick ways that I want to go through with you. First, through prayer. We must pray for the kingdom of God to come. We should pray that the kingdom of God would come among us. That is the reason for why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We must be intentional about praying for the kingdom to become a reality 
among us and around us. See, the Bible teaches us that prayer is not wishful thinking, but prayer is the first courageous step towards conforming our reality to God's reality. We have this uh, misunderstanding sometimes that prayer is to conform uh, God's will to uh, our will. As if we were saying to God, God, this is how I think my life should go. This is how I want the world to function. Will you get on with my agenda? That's what we think prayer is for. And that's why I believe Jesus only teaches us to pray for our daily bread after we pray that his will be established among us, that his kingdom would be present and dwelling among us. It's the first step. Prayer is the first step into conforming into conforming uh, our reality to God's reality. Here's an example of that. When you begin to pray, that begins to happen. That begins to take place. Again, going back to verses 14 and 15 where Jesus talks about this idea of forgiveness. One of the things that you can do for your enemies is to pray for them. To pray for those who bother you, that those that you uh, actually even hate. And here's what I would challenge you to do. As you pray for somebody that you're angry at, that you see as an enemy, and you do that constantly, there's no way that your heart, after doing that for a while, will not be transformed. It's impossible to stay angry at somebody that you're constantly praying to because that's what prayer does. Prayer changes and transforms us. It's the first step to conforming our reality into God's reality. But we're also called to surrender. How do we usher God's kingdom into the world? First, through prayer. We must pray. But secondly, by surrendering. We must surrender. If you don't surrender to the king, you will not even be able to pray this prayer. You will be hesitant to pray this prayer. You will resist praying this prayer. And moreover, you will resist living out this prayer. You must surrender. You cannot expect the kingdom of God to be a reality in your life and around you if you are at war with the king. If you are not living the way of Jesus, the way of the gospel. Here at Crossbridge, we say that our mission is uh, to come alongside people, right? To help them live the way of Jesus. That's what we're here for. But you will not be able to live out the way of Jesus if you don't first surrender to Jesus. That is just very clear. Okay, so how do I surrender to Jesus? Look, you cannot beat your heart into surrendering to Jesus. There's no amount of Christian practices. See, practices are important. It goes alongside our posture of surrender. But... They are not enough in itself to surrender. Like surrender 
has to come through faith in Christ, reliance and rest upon that which he has done. You cannot beat your heart into surrender. You must be able to see and understand the gospel. You must be able to see Jesus surrendering himself for you. A few chapters later, still in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. Hours before, he is betrayed by Judas. And he knows what's coming next. He can feel the heat of the judgment that was about to descend on him. He can feel the betrayal of the crowds and of the disciples that would shortly thereafter abandon him. The pain was multidimensional. He could begin to sense the pain that he would have to undergo when he on the cross would be separated from the Father which he is one with. And so in the garden he bows down, he collapses as he's walking in the garden and he prays to the Father, Father, if it's possible, let me pass this cup. I don't want to drink this cup of judgment. Is it possible to skip this part? And as he continues to pray, the will of God begins to be established in his life. See, it's the step. That's the first step. Remember what I said? It's the first step towards conforming our reality to God's reality. And then Jesus closes that prayer and says, but not my will, but your will be done. Why was Jesus persistent? Why did Jesus not quit? Why did he keep going? Why did he insist and voluntarily go to the cross for our sakes? That's why Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross for my sake and for your sake. He surrendered his life literally on the cross. He died for my sake and for your sake. So that the life of God that was present in him, he is the fullness of God. So that the life of God that's fully present in him could come into our lives and establish God's rule and God's kingdom inside of us and through us into the world. See, it's through the degree that you see Jesus surrendering his life for your sake that you will find the strength and the power to surrender your life for his sake. And when you do, you will be able to pray this way. Father, your kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my city as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my neighborhood as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my workspace as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my college campus as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in my life as it is in heaven. My prayer for you today 
if you've never done this before, is that you would say to Jesus, your kingdom come into my life. And may your will be done in my heart and in my life as it's done in heaven. And if you are already a believer, but you're not living in light of the kingdom, there's still points of resistance towards the will of the king in your life. That through the gospel, through this reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for you, his surrendering for you, that you would repent and that you would let down your guard and that you would rest in him. That your clinched, clinched fists would turn into open hands and bowed knees to the king who is establishing his will on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray with me? If you've never invited Jesus into your life, if you've never acknowledged his lordship over your life, and you want to do that for the very first time, I want you to repeat after me. It says, say this, Jesus, may your kingdom come May your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Say this, today I surrender my life to you. And may the outcome of this surrender be righteousness, peace, and joy. Now I want to pray with those of you who are already believers who have appropriated themselves or yourselves with um, that which Jesus Christ has done for you through faith. Yet, your life is not characterized by righteousness, nor peace, nor joy. You're not living in line with the reality of the kingdom inside of you. And so this is a prayer of surrender and repentance. Will you pray with me? Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Father, I repent for resisting your will in my life, for reflecting more of the values of the world than the values of the kingdom. Father, thank you for reminding me that Jesus surrendered his life for my sake. And through that, give me the power to surrender my life for his sake. If you prayed any of these two prayers, I would ask you that you would let us know Go in the comment section there. There will be a link. I would love for you to fill out that form and let us know that you pray this prayer today. And we will reach out to you and help you as you continue your journey of faith. May God bless you. Have a blessed Sunday. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.